Hi, and welcome to episode 16 of Talking Shit About with me, Elizabeth, and Link in the background, root toots flutin', you know, when they like drag their bodies on the ground and he just loves rolling on carpets. Anyways, we're on part four of our grief series and that's going to be the last episode on grief for now. Maybe it'll come back. I would love for it to come back, but four months is enough, I think. These episodes come out the first Friday of each month where I bring a guest on and we talk about something that's shitty for one reason or another and we try to find the good in it by the end of it. If you are interested in knowing more about death and dying by people who know what they're talking about, you can check out the work by Caitlin Doty on YouTube or if you search her name in any podcast app, you'll find her. Uh, You can listen to Ologies. Link, shut up! You can listen to Ologies with Allie Ward, and she has a couple episodes on thanatology, which is the study of death and dying. You can read works by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, a little dated, but a big name in the death industry, industry, and Joan Didion's The Year of Magical Thinking, a very useful book for me. Maybe you won't get anything out of it, but it's worth a shot. This episode with Dana was not recorded in person, although it was supposed to be, but due to my poor scheduling skills. We had to do it over Zoom. Uh, Worth noting, I didn't eat anything before the interview and recorded it at like seven o'clock at night and I had been doing hard labor in the sun all day. So I was in really rough shape and you can tell Dana's great, Dana's fantastic. So listen to the interview, it's amazing. But just know that's all on Dana and I'm really sorry about my, uh, you'll, you'll know it, you'll know it when you hear it. I'm recording this in August, but we recorded our interview a couple months ago, maybe a month ago. Time is fake. And she came out to visit uh, the other day, actually, and it was really good to see her in person. And I had finished editing and recording the intro for her episode before her visit. And I had this really long story that I shared, and I was like feeling really emotional. And... Later, Link, oh, Link's feeling emotional too. And later when I was listening back to it, I was like, wow, this is, I'm a hot mess. I'm going to re-record this at some point. And then she came to visit and we had an excellent conversation. And the story that I recorded on the intro came up organically in conversation. And so I was like, well, actually, okay, I am going to tell that story. Link, buddy, I've recorded this so many times. I'm not going to record it again. I'm sorry. Okay, this intro is starting to get really long, and now Marty's chewing on me, so I'm going to tell the story really fast, and then we'll get to the episode. So, sad story. I was driving home from a really long, rough day, and on the side of the road, up a little hill, I saw a doe, and I saw an itty-bitty fawn, which I was very excited about. I mean, I see a lot of deer. I see them every day, but it was covered in spots and it was just so tiny and something about tiny animals and so I slowed down as I drove past and I noticed they were circling something on the ground and I looked down and it was another fawn that I'm assuming got hit by a car and so they were nudging it and you know trying to get it to move and it ruined my fucking day because my brain started thinking well how many animals die every single second every single day because of us driving just for convenience sake like on an individual level and then I was like oh yeah and humans factoring in all of that is it worth it 
Is my trip to the market to go get ice cream worth it? The risk of death, either animal or human? Marty, get off of me! This is dramatic! Okay, she's right. It's taking a long time. And I just wanted to tell you that story because, like I said, it came up organically in conversation. And it's really sad, so it's a good way to kick off this episode. So let's go ahead and talk some shit. today with writer Dana. I know she does other stuff, but that's kind of where my mind goes when I think of her. So hello, welcome. Thank you. Uh, good, to, good to chat with you. So before we get into all the nitty gritty, I will go ahead and let you introduce yourself. Um, what kind of makes you you, what you're interested in, just what you want people to know about you. Cool. Um, yeah, well, my name's Dana. Uh, I am 22. I, uh, I am currently uh, a grocery store cashier, though I'm, I'm in the midst of wrapping up that uh, part of my working life. And uh, I do occasional stand-up comedy. I write a lot of short stories. Um, and uh, I spend a lot of time in the woods. And I guess that is about the, the rough of what I am. Oh, what kind of... I must ask what kind of comedy. I don't know if that's even a question. I don't know that much about comedy. Um, what kind of short um, stories do you... Or, yeah, if, if you have an answer. Yeah, yeah. Well, in terms of comedy, I, I tend to do a lot of storytelling. I, I, I often joke that I am not particularly funny, but a lot of funny things have happened to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I struggle sometimes, even though I do do it pretty regularly to consider myself like a stand-up comedian because I mostly just talk about things that have happened to me. There's very rarely like, set up in punchlines it's just sort of like here's a very absurd experience um mm. and honestly with like with any kind of storytelling like with my short stories or like i've written some longer form pieces but it kind of ends up similarly where i'll just take a piece of my life or my experiences and usually apply i, I tend to write more like kind of genre fiction falling into like horror or fantasy or sometimes more like modern magical realism uh, but I'll, I'll usually take some core experience I've had and apply a kind of a, a more fantastical lens to it and then just sort of let it tell itself. And so, yeah, yeah, I tend towards genre fiction and that sort of thing a lot. What formats do you typically write in? Like, do you publish them? I know you post on um, these beautiful Instagram posts um, with pictures and then just like lovely stories. Um, what are your other formats? Um, so I do, yeah, I do a lot of, uh, kind of fairly standard short stories, usually, you know, kind of like six to 10,000 word little pieces, um, kind of these little snippets of larger worlds and lives. Um, I, I don't have anything published currently. Um, so it, 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 it does feel very silly, uh, to call myself a writer, but, uh, I'm kind of working on that in the process of that. Uh, one of the unfortunate realities of any creative industry is a lot of that is not really in my hands. All I can do is make the product. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I I have written a, a, a couple of novellas and uh, I've got one novel that 
Um, I've written that uh, it's in a rough draft stage, just there's not really anything I can quite do with it yet. But uh, yeah, I, I tend towards slightly longer form pieces. But yeah, I also do like to sort of uh, on social media or whatever, just tell these little stories from experiences I've had, just like with late night run-ins with strangers or just kind of odd moments that I've found myself in. Are you up for talking about your novel? Um, I would be. It's it, it's been some time since I've I've worked on it. It was a, a piece that uh, kind of I, I started when I was I was very young. I, I was about eighteen, and uh, I've been working on short stories more. So I haven't picked it up for a, a good a good few months, probably maybe a bit closer to a year now. But over the course of uh, a few years, I I wrote the rough draft for it, and it's a uh, Kind of a medieval fantasy story um, about a, a pair of uh, or a group of kind of uh, political uh, outcasts and uh, bandits who are going through a hostile land uh, and trying to attempt a few very simple goals, but finding that uh, the world does not lend itself to simple goals very well. And so it's kind of, a, I, I would say, a fairly like kind of low fantasy character drama, just about a, a group of people trying to get by in a, in a world that is not particularly fair or kind to them. Do you have any particular themes that you focus on when you're writing, or does it just kind of vary story to story? Um, I find it very story to story, but I also find that no matter what I write, I can't escape being me. So often my stories uh, become these very uh, talky, philosophical sort of things. Like I, I, my, one of my favorite genres of any kind of fiction is high concept genre fiction, where the high concept stuff is more background noise and what the bulk of the actual story is, is just like people sitting around talking about kind of their experiences and philosophies and conclusions that they've come to through them. Um, and so often, you know, like my, my stories will have like, you know, maybe like the occasional fight scene or like scene where there's like a big magical moment or whatever. But most of it is just sort of uh, characters sort of talking through things together and uh, kind of how the relationships through those moments form. I kind of, I, I, I prefer to write about the quiet between storms rather than the storms, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, every interview I've had this, like, awkward moment where I'm like, how do I do this segue? So, do you write about your dad? Because you lost your, sorry, this is so ungraceful. Um, are you comfortable <laughs> talking no, about no, your dad? <laughs> yeah, um, so I do, I, I do write uh, quite frequently about that experience. Um, I tend to uh, fictionalize it very heavily. Uh, what I wrote most about it, uh, I wrote a, a novella after I took a, a road trip with his ashes, um, uh, not long after his passing. I had, I had found a key to his old home, the one that we shared when I was growing up, and that no, uh, the home that no longer exists. And it felt very odd to me holding on to this key, uh, so I decided I, I wanted to get rid of it in this in a in a way that would give me some catharsis and some sense of, of permanence. And so I put his ashes in my car and I drove to Washington and I tossed the key into the ocean and then drove home uh, over the course of about 72 hours. I covered about a thousand miles uh, on very little sleep. And it was very, it was a very strange uh, experience, especially considering my only company was this box of ashes. And so uh, when I came home, I still had, because I took quite a bit of time off, uh, time off of work for it, 
um, I sat down and I wrote a little novella uh, with the rest of my time off. And it is, it takes very directly from those experiences and from the experiences uh, of like kind of losing him, the things that led up to that trip. Uh, but it does it through these purely fictional characters who, uh, you know, all of them share some piece of my history or like my relationship with my father with loss, uh, but who are addressing it from a very kind of fictionalized point of view, which I, I personally find is the easiest way to write about those kinds of things, because I find there's a kind of fundamental inability to understand other human beings that sort of comes with the human experience. So when you talk directly about the things that have affected you, a lot of that is sort of lost in translation. But when you make it so you're instead talking about the things that have happened to someone else, even if most of it is things that have also happened to you, it kind of makes it so you have to make it more understandable uh, because you're not able to just sort of treat as a given certain things or assume that other people's brains work the same way yours do. You kind of have to adjust and make it so that this fictional character's experiences are understandable to you rather than just that your own experiences are, are understandable to you because they always will be, but they're not always going to be understandable to other people. Do you find the writing is like cathartic at all? I definitely do. Um, and I, I often, I, I do find too that uh, kind of in lending pieces of my life to characters, I then have to examine it more than I otherwise would. Um, you know, so if, if I take some flaw or some vice or uh, some attitude from my own life and I attach it to a fictional character, I then have to sort of justify and explore that. You know, I have to ask, why does this character do this thing? Or why do they feel this way? And often we don't think, or at least I don't really think to ask those questions about myself and why I do these things or why I feel that way. And so by attaching it to a character and having to write that character in a cohesive way that makes sense, I am sort of forced to self-examine. Uh, because by asking why that character has this trait of mine, I sort of have to ask why I have this trait of mine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds, yeah, like a good way to deal with some shit. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm like thinking, I'm like, hmm, maybe I should try doing this. I'm just like not very creative, so that's unfortunate. But um, It can be hard, yeah. Yeah. So this road trip that you took, um, did you find that cathartic at all? I, it sounds like it was just kind of an impulse thing, is that right? Uh, it, it very much was. I, I, I had come to the decision a couple weeks prior to the trip itself. Um, but yeah, it, it was sort of the, the sort of thing where I, I tend to fixate on these very small, very symbolic things. A lot of my life exists in metaphor for better or worse. And so I fixated very heavily on this key. And as soon as I found it, I just, it, I felt distinctly the need to get rid of it. It sort of represented to me this kind of hope for something that couldn't be. Uh, and I felt in keeping it, I was allowing fantasies for something that was untenable or that couldn't come. And it, it, was, it was sort of strange actually getting there to uh, the ocean. I, I hadn't been to the ocean in my adult life. I was there once when I was seven. But in my whole memory of my time with my father, I can never remember a time we saw the ocean together. I think there may have been one when I was very young, but this was the first time I could remember doing it. So it was sort of nice in uh, in kind of discarding the key, I was marking an ending, but in bringing him, I was also marking the beginning of a new memory shared with us, but this time with a corpse rather than, or with ashes rather than with a living man. Um, and when I threw the key in, there was definitely a feeling of 
it, funnily enough, I expected it to be bigger uh, or more kind of momentous, but it was just a sort of quiet understanding. Uh, it was it was a kind of the perfect day for it too. It was raining extremely heavily. Uh, there were actually there were some, some signs warning about going on the beach, but I had driven 700 miles or so in a haze, and uh, I was obviously not in a particularly rational state of mind, and so I wasn't going to let that stop me. Uh, and the, the beach was full of just these uh, discarded bits of dead shells and things. There was a, a heron that had washed up that was just curled up into this little ball of rot, and standing there it, it felt very kind of cinematic and so I, I threw it in and and yeah it was it was just this moment of it was cathartic but more than that it, it was just quiet it, it was a kind of in that way I think when a major realization happens it happens in stages and then all at once so uh, it, it forced an understanding into me that I logically understood but I don't think emotionally had really acknowledged yet that kind of truth that that key was never going to find the door to that old house and it was never going to unlock it and I would never open that door and find my dad on the other side because that house was gone and that key was just a key to nowhere now and so in getting rid of it it was a kind of undeniable acknowledgement of that fact and no longer having the room of that at least emotional if not logical denial uh, it, it sort of it forced me to kind of look at the way things were and uh, so, yeah, it, it was uh, it was a very cathartic experience, I would say. Are you spiritual? Uh, yes. <laughs> is that a, is um, that a tough question? <laughs> no, it's it, I, I, I when I was in high school, I, I, I got really into existentialism and I still have a number of very existentialist tendencies. I'm a very, very hyper individualistic person. And most of the things I do, I feel the need to do on my own. And so I kind of, I have come to appreciate God in my own way. Um, like I said, I, I, um, I guess I don't think I did much, but there's a, there's a place in the mountains that was a great comfort to me uh, in after my dad's passing. I'd, I'd been going to it as a camping spot for a couple of years prior. It's just this little fire pit off a dirt road tucked away in the mountains near Clinton. And uh, it was sort of the perfect place to get away for some quiet. And Often, uh, I would go spend my nights out there uh, after everything that happened with my dad. And sometimes when I was hiking along, and occasionally this still does happen, um, there would be these moments I'd hit a nice point of elevation and the wind would pick up and I could hear it moving through every tree and every branch and every leaf and every stone. And it would just sound to me like the most beautiful music, like the whole mountain or even the whole world was singing. And every time I hear it, I can't help but feel, and again, maybe this is just my tendency towards symbolism and metaphor, but that that song, that kind of music of all creation is God, or at least my version of God. So yes, I would describe myself as spiritual. I don't, I, not in, I suppose, a very traditional way, and I, a lot of my gods are, uh, my views on gods are very particular. Um, I, I don't think of God as like a thing with a will or a thing that thinks. I think it's more like a mirror or a shadow of creation. Um, I do have love for God, but I don't see it or sort of the, the arc of the universe as being particularly kind or just. I think things just are. Do you think that has impacted the way your grieving process has gone? I would say it certainly has. Um, I, 
it is a comfort to me to think that however it happens, all things that exist play a part in this sort of song, this kind of music of God. And it gave me comfort to know, or to believe anyway, I, I, knowing is a, is a very strong word for spiritual matters, but uh, at least to believe that my dad too had a part to play in that song and that I too have a part to play in that song. And uh, whatever ends or whatever hurts, in the end, it has all contributed to this symphony. And so, yes, it, it has been a comfort to me. I, I don't think of God as kind or as sort of compassionate to creation, but I think of it as beautiful. And I think that to be a part of something beautiful is a reward of its own, even if that beauty, beauty is often uh, wrapped in cruelty or difficulty. What are some other things, um, whether they be like tangible um, like eating a lot of ice cream or <laughs> more existential, like internal processing that have helped you um, through the process of grieving? Well, I, I, I have found um, that just talking helps a lot. Particularly, I, I, I developed a habit and this is, uh, <laughs> it, it, it's very silly, but it, it did, it was very helpful for quite a while. I, um, when I, sort of things got to be too much, I would often just drive off to my little spot in the mountains and I'd spend the night alone just watching the stars. And when I wanted to talk about things that were difficult to talk about or that I felt might be troubling for people to hear, I would just talk to the mountain and just sort of ramble on for you know an hour or so. And just whatever was on my mind or whatever I was feeling, I would just sort of speak it out. Uh, and I guess in that way, it was sort of like journaling, which I also uh, tend to do from time to time. Sometimes I find just speaking uh, aloud is a lot more cathartic or kind of, it feels a lot more real than just writing something down. It kind of puts it into the world in this very significant way. Um, so I find, yeah, even if it's not a person, just finding things to talk to is helpful. I mean, I, I've developed a habit. Occasionally I will, uh, you know, uh, I have my dad's ashes on, on a little uh, spot of bookshelf by my writing desk. And, you know, occasionally I'll put a hand on it and just say, uh, you know, hello, or uh, not a full conversation, but just a simple acknowledgement of it. And to still know I can speak to my dad, even if he can't talk back is, it's, it's very comforting. And so I, I think just being able to speak your experiences, even not to a person, but just to anything is, uh, it's helpful because in saying it aloud, I think you have to examine it. Mm -hmm. Um, how about things that are unhelpful or that have been challenging? Yeah, I, I have found that often it, what is helpful is also in its own way unhelpful. Um, the last, uh, I, I reached the first anniversary of my dad's death a few weeks ago. And I, I, funnily enough, I spent it uh, very similarly to the way I had spent the night of his death in that I stayed up all night watching the sunrise. Uh, but as opposed to a year previous where I was sitting in his hospital room and he was moving on and he sort of, he, he left as the sun rose. Uh, and this time I was alone wandering the city and watching the sunrise. And it was this kind of parallel that it forced me to acknowledge how much had changed in this year and also that I had let certain things lapse. Uh, and since then I've actually, I spent, I've spent a lot less time out in the mountains because I've, I've come to understand that a lot of this last year has been spent nursing my wounds, which was necessary and helpful uh, in, in ways, 
but there does come a time where you have to move on from that. And so I found I've been trying to kind of refocus on my life down here among kind of the human world and my domestic affairs rather than spending every chance I can get running off to just be alone in the mountains and sort of be nothing. I, I do find that is the one of the benefits of isolation or of the wilderness is that there's no expectations that kind of come with human society or culture in that you there up there to me at least there aren't words for things language and sort of politeness those things don't really exist they're just a series of objects uh some of them living some of them not and you when you are alone out there i feel are just another object in this world of nameless things and so it's, it, it creates a sort of escape from yourself which is necessary but it also can easily become a crutch and so it, it's a behavior I've had to kind of learn to straddle the line on. I have this impulse when I'm in like flight mode or yeah if I'm just overwhelmed it's like gotta get to the woods just get to the woods yep. like there's no people there that can stress you out um so yeah I totally feel you but there's also yeah something about being in nature that is genuinely good for your mental health yeah I don't know if that's a factor but um Oh, it definitely is. I think, yeah, just reminding yourself how much larger the world is than yourself. Because it's, it is easy to think of the world as nothing but human beings and their losses or your own losses. But sort of just seeing a place without human beings and coming, coming to understand just how much more complex everything is. You know, I, I, there is so much anxieties, at least that I wrap myself around in, in the day-to-day -day life of just being a human being and living in the human world. And then when you get a little space from it, a little perspective, you know, a little sunshine and greenery, it all feels very small and petty and a lot easier to handle. Mm -hmm. You would think that feeling small and insignificant would like be bad, but sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's nice to realize that things aren't happening because God hates you or, I mean, maybe he does, but um, <laughs> God hates you or, you know, you've stacked up a lot of bad karma for not putting your shopping cart away. So you deserve everything that's coming to you. And um, it can be so easy to lo be lost in that headspace, but just recognizing that, oh, I'm just a speck. Yeah, there's just all of this chaos I feel like the concept of chaos is becoming really popular right now, which is good because everything's <laughs> chaos. Um, oh, yeah. Just recognizing, yeah, that you're not at the center of the universe. There's just shit happening. And sometimes you're just dealt a shit hand and then another and then another. But that doesn't mean there aren't opportunities and good things out there. It's just that's where you're at. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that guilt and shame are still kind of expressions of ego in their way and that like we we want to feel like we're in control and so by extension we have to make sure that we have to see everything as our fault you know it, it, everything bad that happens to us has to be some karmic justice or some result of our own decisions because if that's not true then that's pretty scary and sort of and so i think yeah often the we, we hold on to guilt and shame to feel in control and then when you understand that smallness, that you really are just this tiny voice in a chorus of voices, then that guilt and that shame feels a lot less powerful. And I, I think so too do, uh, do the factors that cause it. You know, I mean, I 
I feel much less uh, sort of afraid of death or antagonizing towards death when I just see how much bigger the world is. You know, that, that little spot in the mountains, that's going to outlive me by, well, practically forever. And so it's nice to know that I have been this small blip in this massive tapestry of history that has carved itself across the landscape. And to know that so much of what I am, the things that have made me what I am, are going to continue on beyond me. And so in that smallness, I think that there is a great power. Mm -hmm. Fuck, that was so beautiful. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> Brain thanks. catching up. How do you, I guess, um, do you want to talk at all about your relationship with your dad? Because um, if I'm not mistaken, you feel like I heard you, not heard you, Jesus Christ, um, saw you write about him um, like before his passing, like you guys were pretty close. We were, we, we had our issues, um, particularly in my, my adult life. We did, we, um, we did not see each other as often as we ought to have. And that was just two people having busy lives. But I, I, I lived with him for a great deal of my life through uh, most of my childhood, it was split custody. The, the last year of high school, I lived entirely with him. And we were very close particularly prior to his diagnosis, there were a lot of complications. Um, my father was a very wonderful man, very intelligent and very loving, but who struggled a lot with vices and with bitterness and with loneliness. And sometimes it could be painful to see. And there were a lot of weaknesses in him that I found myself very bitter towards in my adult life, kind of things that I wish he had been better at or had done more with. And I, it is something I, I do look back on and sometimes feel very terribly for. The, the last time I saw him prior to his diagnosis, he was returning my car because I had loaned it to him for what was meant to be a very brief period, but turned into a very long period. And our interactions in that time, I, I was very curt and very annoyed with him. and. Then, you know, a, a month or so later, I, I got the call from his ex-girlfriend that something had happened to his leg. And she wasn't entirely sure what it was, but uh, it had, um, and essentially what we learned later was uh, he had lung cancer and the, uh, it, it had spread throughout his body to the point where a tumor had formed on his femur and then popped and snapped the femur in half. Mm. Um, and so he was life flighted out to Spokane uh, because uh, that is apparently a very specific uh, specialty uh, in that uh, bone uh, or cancer on bones is there's not a doctor in Montana who knows how to deal with that. Uh, and so I went up there to go see him. And as soon as we knew shit had hit the fan, I mean, any, any issues between us were resolved uh, immediately because we, even though there, you know, as I said, there were certain issues I had with my father and certain times that things between us got complicated, but we both loved each other very deeply. Funnily enough, I, I, I have noticed one of the odd uh, aftermaths of grief is that I hate Spokane, Washington more than <laughs> any other place in the world. Uh, and I have legitimate issues with the way the city is structured and but mostly it is probably because it's the place I went to learn my father was dying. I remember um, I on the second day going to visit him and he was speaking with a priest because uh, he went to Sacred Heart, which is a, a religious hospital. I don't know 
the details of how it's run, but I know there there is a, there's a church there, and the uh, the priest had been sort of speaking to him about end of life things, and I um, my father detested religion, and so when I saw him speaking with the priest, no, he, he was not an unspiritual man. Uh, most of his beliefs could be ascribed to a sort of loose Buddhism. Um, but he, he was not a big fan of most structured religion, Christianity in particular. And so seeing this priest left me with this distinct impression of just how real this was and how permanent and how serious. Um, and th this priest was, I, I feel bad for it because he was a lovely man. Um, he, he, was, he was very kind, uh, but he just looked uh, like the kind of guy who uh, is the dad in stock photos like kind of early middle age, very square jaw, big smile. And he came over and shook my hand and it was a practiced handshake. Like that sort of handshake that's very firm and you know, a very, very sure, but feels just rehearsed and kind of inauthentic. And in that moment, I think I hated that man more than I've probably ever hated anyone for being happy, just for, for smiling at me in this moment that to me was so grave. But afterwards, um, in the month or so following the diagnosis and leading up to the death, uh, I helped my dad with his final arrangements, uh, with gathering his things, with discarding of any uh, sort of embarrassing materials he wanted me to get rid of, with contacting uh, loved ones. He, he hadn't spoken to his uh, extended family for quite a long time. Uh, and so me, my brother, and uh, our mother, his ex-wife, uh, we all had to sort of wrangle them and get them to his hospital room um, to see him off, uh, which was a little difficult. They were on the other side of the country, um, but uh, we managed it. And um, in, in doing so, I, my father and I grew very close. Um, I, I saw him as often as I could, and I, I found myself spending every spare moment I had thinking of what could be done for him and doing what needed to be done for him. I find in, in high stress situations or in times of great need, I tend to obsess with what is necessary and sort of restrict my emotions somewhat. And that is that is one thing I, I do regret slightly in, in that process of his dying is that I was going a million miles an hour doing everything I felt needed to be done, but very little of that time was spent actually being emotionally present with him. But yes, we, we had a good relationship. It had its issues as I moved into my adult life, but uh, especially upon his diagnosis, we we became very close and particularly in how he responded to it in that he, he demonstrated a will and a pride and a dignity that I've frankly not seen in any other human being. As soon as he got the news, he said, I don't want to prolong this with treatment and have a miserable few years. If this is me done, this is me done. And he didn't pout or cry or make a scene about it. He just said, this is it, so it's time to face it. And I, uh, I, I have more respect for him for the way he handled that than I do for most people. Did you find that um, spending, I know you were very busy during that time, but getting those things done and stuff, was that, and getting to spend the time with him, was that helpful, do you think? for your grieving process? It was, I think. Um, it is a complicated thing in that those few, those that uh, I think it was roughly a month and a half in between diagnosis and death. So that, that, uh, that month or so was, um, 
it created an intimacy between my father and I that we hadn't really had in quite a while uh, in that we both were deep within this shared experience. And that has its positives and its negatives. I came to know, I feel, and to love my father in a way more deep and more true than I, than I think I had as a child or even as a young adult. I, I felt in that moment we were we were two adult human beings kind of confronting this thing together. And in that sort of shared struggle, there was a, a real kinship that um, I, I think is, is hard to find between people. But it did also come with its difficulties. I, the last night in particular um, was one of, of, of some trouble to me. Um, I am very much nocturnal. Uh, I work nights. Um, my job before it, I, I was a night shift janitor. Um, so, I, and I also just enjoy being up at night, uh, being a, a country kid. I like having outdoor areas to myself. I like, like being outside uh, to me means being alone. Uh, and in the city, it's that's only true at like three in the morning. Uh, so I, I spend a lot of my time just wandering the city very late at night. And my brother, uh, who I, I uh, love very much, he, he, he knows this. And so, in the final days, uh, the last night uh, in particular, uh, I, had, I had caught a nap earlier in the day and he called me uh, and he said, hey, you know, me and my fiance have been driving for a very long time to get here and we've been watching him for most of the, the, uh, the day. Um, and can you, since you're up so late all the time, come and watch him over the night uh, to let us know when, you know, we need to get everybody together to see him off. And so, you know, obviously I, I did. And that night uh, I spent mostly alone uh, with my dad watching, eventually watching the sun slowly rise. Uh, and at that point he was unresponsive. His breathing was terribly shallow and occasionally uh, he would make this sort of choking noise uh, and his breathing would stop for just long enough for me to lean in and wonder uh, if I was about to have to make that call. Uh, and then he would gasp, this horrible wet gasp, and I would have to go back to waiting and watching. And that night is, left me with the distinct impression that heaven and hell are for the living. I think when my dad died, he just died. But that night in that hospital room, that to me was truly hell. And I felt in a lot of ways, particularly in the aftermath and why I think it has taken me a great deal of time to kind of return to a normal life is that I, I felt in many ways I, fo I followed my father into the land of the dead and we reached a point where he kept going and I had to turn back. And obviously logically I understand the answer to why that happened is he had cancer and I didn't. Uh, but there felt to me sort of a, a great injustice, just this profound failure and loss in that I, I, there was a point we reached where I could no longer follow him. Uh, and I, I, I didn't really understand exactly what, what that pain was until that anniversary came. And I spent the night similarly up all night, slowly watching the sunrise, but this time alone. Because I, I noticed distinctly how much less lonely I was on this anniversary. Because I think there is not a lot more lonely than watching someone go somewhere you can't follow. And so that that was a difficulty to me uh, was and that kinship and that shared struggle it, it brought us closer but it also made that loss I think all the more painful. Um, he did he had a good death, 
uh, when it came time, I made the call and my brother and his fiance and our uncles and my mom and her husband and his ex-girlfriend, they all made it there in time. And as he went, the sun had risen. It was a beautiful sunny summer night or summer morning and the birds were singing outside and then he went and uh, we all were there with him as he did. And so it was, it was a good death and I got him there and I, I am glad and, and honestly proud to have been able to do that for him. But, uh, but that night was, yes, if I, if I am speaking frankly, probably the worst night of my life. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but yes, I, I think it, it does help in a lot of ways to have seen him in those moments, not, I, I suppose, the last couple days, but when he knew it was coming, demonstrating this just sort of profound pride and dignity. And I, I have found since the anniversary kind of trying to readjust myself uh, and move on from this sort of state of healing and in many ways of hiding. Uh, and something that I, I, I thought that struck me um, that I, I have found has kind of guided me through this beginning stage of the next period of my life is that I want to live with the kind of pride my father died with. And so in that way, he has left me with a great strength or at least a great aspiration uh, to follow in those footsteps. Mm -hmm. With that in mind, how do you feel now compared to when you first found out about the diagnosis? calmer <laughs> i think <laughs> um in the time of the diagnosis i i i was very much in a flurry it, it was it was a period of, of great confusion um and it, it, was, it was not made easier um by uh by a number of factors i i remember just getting so angry um on the second day uh i he was in sacred heart we were expecting some test results that uh, we knew it was very, very bad, but this would essentially tell us whether it was terminal or if it was terminal, just how bad it was. And so I went and got a nurse once I came to see him uh, to tell me about these test results. And this nurse walks in and it is his first day on my dad's case. So he has no prior knowledge of what has happened. Um, so he pulls up a, uh, spreadsheet, like an Excel spreadsheet and just starts reading off like Latin words and numbers to me. <laughs> and I, I sort of cut him off at a certain point and I'm like, Hey man, I don't know what any of those things mean. That is your job. I need to tell, I need you to tell me like the translation of this. Yeah. And he sort of just stroked his chin and with this painful nonchalance just goes, well, if it's in his blood, it's probably stage three or four. And uh, just the just to have someone sort of treat what to me was probably the most important thing in the world as this kind of casual little, oh, maybe this, maybe that sort of sentiment. It There is one thing I found uh, that has alleviated itself quite a bit is that grief lends itself to a very intense kind of bitterness. Uh, when he was dying and in the aftermath of his dying, I found myself just getting angry at the sun for rising and the world for turning and life for moving on. It felt in a lot of ways like I was being left behind with the dead. And 
I've been able to move on from that and mature from that sentiment. Uh, I, I would like to think entirely, but you know, I, I suppose nothing is healed from entirely. But I have let go of a lot of that bitterness and come to accept that there is beauty in the ever turning of the world. It, it sort of, as I said before, it, with that kind of being small comes with a lot of peace and knowing that you're a part of something much larger. You know, it, knowing that the world still turns and the sun still rises, even as such large parts of my life live and die, gives me some sense of peace to know that the world will go on. Even if everyone I love dies and I die, the world will keep turning and something out there will still exist. And somewhere out there, there will still be beauty. What advice would you give to yourself um, at that point when you first found out about the diagnosis? If you could go back in time, be, grab yourself by the shoulders and be like, hey, I need to tell you this. This will hopefully be helpful. What would it be? Well, in honesty, uh, um, there is one thing that has uh, has taken me some time to move on from as a, a source of some regret uh, in that my father and I did not have a very physical relationship. I have a very particular rela a relationship with touch. I'm not a very physically affectionate person, and he is rather similar. Um, we did not hug often, um, you know, occasionally we would, it, it wasn't, it was by no means a cold relationship, but we just were not very physical with each other. And I caught myself during the times of the diagnosis, so caught up in listening, uh, to him as he talked about what he needed done in helping with the final arrangements and getting the things he needed to his hospital room so he could <laughs> decorate his deathbed. I never made the time, as I, I said, I, I struggled to sort of be emotionally present for him in that time rather than just to sort of be this pragmatic force doing what needs to be done. And to speak honestly, I, I did not hold him in those in that month he was dying. Uh, I, I don't think of those things uh, when things are serious. I don't really think about those small touches of human comfort. I think of hard, factual, uh, simple things to be done. I, I tend to get very utilitarian. And it, it is a, a, a pretty large regret of mine that I, I didn't hold him until he was already dead. And holding his hand, there is a, there is a profound stillness to a, a corpse. It, it is more still than an inanimate object. It is, it's disorienting, honestly, a little terrifying just that intense lack of movement. It felt like touching a mannequin, but it, it, and so if I, if I were to give myself advice, I, I would say that in the end, no matter how much you do that needs to be done, you can't save someone who's dying. You can just be there with them and hold them as they go. That's beautiful, thank you. That was sort of my wrap up question. Um, but I wanted to invite you if there were any, if there's anything else you wanted to touch on, or if you wanted, if there were any stories that have come to mind, um, hmm. you're welcome to share. Well, I, th I think we've hit all the bases. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, I, yeah, I've covered kind of the, I, I suppose, the, the rough of, of all that happened, kind of my experience with it. Um, yeah, I, I, I have, I, or had uh, in my life previous experiences with death. But yes, I, I, I think 
that those that that month and a half and the the year that followed uh, with my dad that that was the first time I think I, I truly came to intimately know death, and in a sense I suppose I, I am grateful for it in that it is never a bad thing to know the ways of the world and knowledge is never a bad thing and death is for better or worse very much inevitable and there are going to be people in your life you lose sometimes very painfully uh sometimes very helplessly but to know that and to carry that knowledge and to know how those things work and just even if it doesn't necessarily give you any power to change them just just to know them i i think is important and so i i I suppose, you know, in a way, though, frankly, I, I would give up a bit of knowledge if it meant having my dad back. I am grateful that I was able to come to know and to learn about death in such a such an intimate way, and that it allows me, I think, to have a, a better understanding of it. I, when I speak to people who are struggling with their own grief, um, I I work at a grocery store that is a lot of regulars, and many of them have gotten maybe a little too comfortable. Uh, telling me about the the worries of their lives, and sometimes uh, you know I'll I'll have to talk someone through a loss um, or a medical episode, and now I I feel much more equipped to do that, and so I I think I I am at least glad that I have been given that much in that I am able to provide comfort to people in a way and uh, within an experience that previously I would not have been able to. Cool. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Well, thank thank you for talking. I, this was this was very nice, and uh, yeah, it's it's very good to very good to hear from you. That's a wrap for this month's episode of Talking Shit About. Thank you, Dana, Amanda, Bree, and Ferd, for being a part of this series, and thank you, listeners, for listening. If you haven't gotten a chance, please give the show a rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And I will see you again next month. Stay safe, healthy, and happy.